0: Yeah, that new sensation. We're talking about 5G. We want to talk F. about it. <laughs> it's another F. We're gonna we're gonna have a laundry list of uh, <laughs> the other Fs by the end of the day. Hey, let's get into 5G. What you really need to know uh, when it comes to uh, 5G specifically. Bob O'Donnell is president and chief analyst at Technalysis Research, based in Foster City, California. In our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio, right here in New York. We said it's been a long time.
2: Yeah, it has. It has. But it's so great to be back. Well, I
0: it's great yeah. to have you back.
2: Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate it. So, but,
0: what do we need to know? I mean, I feel like our phones and things have become so disposable. It kind of hurts me, yeah, uh, in terms of the waste. But tell me about five G. What do I need to know? Well, what do, what do I care?
2: Yeah, about? you know, here's the deal. If five G, let's be clear, this is a multi-year transition. Everybody's been talking about it as if it's going to happen. A, a switch is going to turn, and boom, here it is. Like Uh, Y2K. Yeah, sort of. (laughs) But you got a couple of things you got to remember. Bottom line is, eventually, what we will get is faster networks, more efficient networks, uh, slightly safer networks, and applications beyond just phones that do some interesting things. And so that's why there's a lot of promise there.
0: This Pro- is about things talking to one another?
2: It's about things talking to one another. It's about cars talking to devices, to street lamps, to everything, all, all those things. Now look, all those things are possible now, but 5G does it a little bit more efficiently um, and it's gonna be exciting. The challenge you've got is you've got a number of companies that have been out there touting this forever and then all of a sudden then the reality of how this stuff works kicks in. The other, pro- and it's not quite there yet. Right. The other big issue is, unlike any other G transition, this one you actually have to know a little bit about. That's the problem. So like when we went to 3G to 4G, it's like you just did it, right? You, you do always have to get a new phone yeah. that supports the standard, so same with 5G. Very few 5G phones out there. But not only, there's basically So what two- do we need to know? There's two types of 5G, this is what you gotta know. One is called millimeter wave. The other one is called SUB6. Both of those have to do with the radio frequency spectrum, since we're on radio, uh, that they actually use to transmit their signals. Millimeter wave goes super fast over a very short distance. It doesn't go through buildings. It's unlike any other cellular technology we've had. Uh, SUB6 is just like standard uh, cellular uh, coverage in the sense that it you know goes through buildings, it goes a longer way. They're very, very different. Right now, there are some phones that support one or the other, not both. That's the biggest thing you need to know. And, you know, as a result- Well,
0: that doesn't seem very smart. Well, it's not. And of course,
2: that (laughs) that situation will change by the middle of next year. We'll have phones that support both. But right now, nobody knows this. So
0: why would you make a phone that only supports one when it seems like it doesn't make any sense?
2: Yeah, well, so the idea is that even if it only supports one, it's a little bit better than the old stuff. And by the way, let's not forget, these things all do fall back to 4g right? right so if i'm in an area where i don't get you know 5g it falls back to 4g just like right now if you're ever in an area right. that doesn't have 4g you fall back to 3g so
1: same same kind of thing all right so is 5g going to be as awesome as everybody says once it's all up and running eventually
2: but okay. that but the issue is it's going to be a little while before yeah. some What's of a this little event. while couple years yeah it's gonna be a couple years I, look
0: so I don't th- buy a new phone for like two years
2: i would say look i think it's going to be safe to buy a phone by the middle of to end of next year because they're going to have the basic guts in there to support both of these things. And then the networks themselves are getting better. I mean, this just in the past week, we had both T-Mobile and AT&T introduce what they called sort of more nationwide type service using these sub-six frequencies. Um, the, the blowback has been, wait a minute, this isn't much faster than right. I already have. And in some cases, it's not even as fast as some of the fastest 4G.
1: And so what about on the hardware side? I mean, are the... Presumably, I, one would imagine that the Apple's and Samsung's and and others of the world are developing phones that will be better and cooler and have all those must-have apps on them. When will we see those phones that really take advantage of all well,
2: this? Well, we're gonna we're starting to see this. So, Samsung's got a couple of five G phones. Um, there's a couple. Uh, LG has one. Um, uh, a OnePlus, it's a smaller company, is working with T-Mobile on their launch. Uh, And next year we're gonna see the first 5G iPhone. And so it'll be September when Apple always does their phones. You know, and what's driving this is the chips inside. So you know, you've heard a lot about Qualcomm. Qualcomm is the company that's driving most of this innovation on the chip side, because they do the 5G modems. There's a Taiwanese company called MediaTek that Intel just partnered with. It's also gonna be doing this. We're gonna see 5G in PCs, starting
0: at this CES show in January. So I mean, it's it's coming along. I have a question. Because of the trade war, um, Bob, that's been going on, um, Um, And I think about Huawei Technologies. We just had, um, I think it was the chief of security uh, at Huawei, uh, Huawei USA. And I do wonder about, will we ultimately potentially end up with different standards in terms of 5G? And then how problematic is that for our phones? You
2: know, Carol, that's a great question. There is a worldwide standard. But what we're going to see is some splintering. We're already starting to see this in other areas of tech between sort of Chinese standards and U.S. standards. In terms of actual call and signaling and the basic stuff you need to make a network work, I think you're going to, I don't think we'll see them diverge just yet. I think it's, you know, China is using the 5G standards set by what's called the GSMA. It's a global uh, organization. So, you know, I mean, they're all using that. The issues you start to run into become interesting ones around which countries are offering which spectrum. From service and who can get ahead faster and China is actually doing a lot there because here in the US the FCC can of course controls the radio spectrum and there's a bunch of frequencies that are set aside right now for military that they want to use for 5g and so there's a lot of political battles around on 5g in right. order to get that going
1: all right. Well, we're going to leave it there. Great to have you here with us, Bob O'Donnell, President Chief Analyst for Technalysis Research. to the
0: crowd. Yeah, waving
1: to all the crew walking by. Our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers it's the holidays, studio. love in
0: town. Yeah, they exactly. came to see the site. They came to
1: see the tree. Carol yes. Masser. It's all part of the you know the same sort of uh, tour that crazy do.
0: tour, crazy NYC it tour. It
1: happens. It happens. <laughs> Well, as Carol said, put zombie in a headline, people tend to pay attention, especially when it comes to the future of the asset management business. Eric Schatzker, a great interview earlier today with David Hunt, he is the CEO of PGM. Eric joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. All right, Mr. Schatz, so what did uh, David have to tell you?
3: Jason, it's a bull market for risk assets. It is not a bull market for the firms that manage those assets. David is calling it like it is. He says that as many as 80% of the firms in the asset management industry accounting for some one-half of all the money overseen will become zombies because the industry is changing so rapidly, they can't adapt, they don't have the right business models, their performance just simply isn't there, and many are addicted to an outmoded way of running assets for clients which is to say hugging benchmarks and not actually generating real excess return
1: by the way i love the term benchmark hugging by the way (laughs) benchmark huggers is the name of uh, carol's it sounds a lot more cuddly than it actually yeah it's not good it's not not good and it's it's an invitation to obscurity well it's an
3: invitation to take your assets into a passive product which can give you what the s p 500 for example uh in can generate in the space of a year for a fee of well under 0.1%. In some cases, the fees are as low as 0.015%. It's so low as to be almost insignificant. That's the future that active equity managers are facing. Either they find a way to outperform, or they are, in David's words, going to be zombies. They may not go out of business because asset management tends to be a sticky industry. Clients tend to be you know, fairly loyal to their money managers but what they won't do is attract new assets what they won't be able to do is maintain fees at current levels thus their margins will decline and they'll be zombies
0: so all right Eric you could say this I could say this Jason could say it, but when David Hunt says it I mean give us a little perspective it about means something got you're
3: yet. absolutely right so he runs a firm PGM that has 1.3 trillion dollars under management that makes it one of the largest the 10 largest uh, traditional asset managers in the world they specialize Mostly in public fixed income, that's about 45% of their assets. They also do a lot of public equity. They also do a lot of real estate. They've been moving more and more in recent years into alternatives. So they have positioned themselves for this shift in flows out of large cap equity uh, funds, for example, and into different kinds of products. He's a Princeton engineering grad. He spent most of his career as a consultant at McKinsey, so he's been analyzing this industry until 2011 when Prudential, which is the parent company to Peacham, hired him to run their, run their investment management business. And like consultant, you know how they say doctors aren't the best people to run hospitals? You know, you could make the similar analogy to asset managers. Sometimes they aren't the right people mm-hmm. to run asset management right. firms. And so here's a guy who has a background as a, as a consultant and comes in with a very fresh perspective on how to build uh, an asset management firm, and
1: so does this. Uh, you talk to some of the most important people on Wall Street across the board, uh, both on the buy side and the sell side. Does this echo what you hear from other people?
3: This uh, sort of existential warning. Yes, in fact, uh, I think David's a little more precise about it. He says that there are only three business models that ultimately are going to thrive. One is giant passive managers i.e. BlackRock BlackRock. and Vanguard. Maybe we can throw State Street and a couple of other firms into that bucket, but there are very few. The second is smaller, highly strategic asset managers that specialize in a particular type of investment, say, private equity. And they they will not be nearly as large as the Giants, even if Blackstone is making its way toward a trillion dollars in assets. BlackRock's already at seven and growing. And the third will be a multi-asset manager with global reach. And David would put PGM in that camp. And there are certainly a number of others that you could throw into that camp. Invesco probably qualifies. But again, it's a small number. You've probably, in his view, only got maybe a dozen firms like that globally Amundi would be one in Europe for example and so do they consolidate or do people just go out of business no and that's the thing consolidation doesn't necessarily help because right. what ends up happening too often is you get like managers consolidating all they're able to do is cut costs they're not actually adding capability they're not adding new products they're not they're not you know building a more diversified product offering their clients and so they don't actually become any better or more appealing at what they do they might become a little more you know financially efficient but scale alone isn't a survival tactic
1: yeah really really interesting all right eric schatzker editor at large so much more here at bloomberg his conversation with david hunt over at pgm it's the most read story and one of the most emailed stories as well this is something folks on wall street certainly talking about
0: So earlier we caught up with the CEO and founder of Beyond Meat, Ethan Brown. Now, what's interesting is it's been quite a year for Beyond Meat. This uh, meat alternatives market, just the expectations keep growing and growing and growing. But keep in mind, he is part of the Bloomberg 50 this year, which is in the magazine, and Beyond Meat, if you look at it in so many different ways. It debuted as a public company in May. Its share soared. It was the best IPO since the financial crisis. Um, but the company continues to find more and more opportunities, so there was so much to talk about.
1: It was a big year for sure, and we started by asking him what the big moments were in 2019.
4: You know, if you look at the growth of the business from 2009 to today, we've always had the same goal in mind, which is to become a company that can provide protein for the center of the plate. For the mainstream consumer and so if you look at particularly our third quarter this year whether it's the mcdonald's tests we announced the subways um, or uh, kfc or Duncan, all four of those were really important to us in terms of being able to communicate the message that we have, which is you can build a piece of meat directly from plants, you can provide it to consumers where they enjoy eating their food, and you can do so in a way that enables them to continue to eat what they love, giving them a more nutritious, something that's better for their bodies and better for the earth, and doing it in the formats that they're familiar with.
0: What about this year surprised you the most? What was the most challenging?
4: You know, it always is around continuing to educate not only the consumer but the media around just how healthy and uh, how much our company is driven by the human health imperative. If you look at the products we're creating, Take the Dunkin' sausage, for example. That product has 50% less fat, it has 44% less saturated fat, it has 37% less sodium, and it has more protein and more iron. So when you're beginning with a blank canvas and you're able to build a piece of meat directly from plants, you can leave out a lot of the things that you wouldn't want to be consuming on a daily basis, such as cholesterol, and you can lower things like saturated fat, and you can provide the consumer with a very healthy product that they get to enjoy, yet continue to move the ball forward year over year and making the products healthier and healthier. So as we get into 2020, you'll see us continue to drive toward goals that will enable the consumer to eat what they love but do it in a way that's healthier for them.
0: Well, let's talk about that because I feel like that comes up often about maybe this becoming even a healthier product because there is still a fair amount of sodium and so on in it. Do you guys think about doing some kind of reformulating to lower calories or a lower sodium amount? Is that kind of in the future?
4: So if you look at the DNA of the company, we are an innovation-driven company. We uh, produce uh, all of our products uh, here in the U.S., and we have our, um, our our innovation center here in in Los Angeles. We call that innovation center the Manhattan Beach Project. We do that because we're near Manhattan Beach. But more importantly, <laughs> we wanted to evoke that sense of urgency and scale that occurred in the Second World War with the Manhattan Project itself. We brought together the very best scientists, the best engineers, the best managers, and gave them a clear goal, which is to build meat directly from plants, Now, when you're doing that, you're always improving, and we have these parameters we call the fat, flavor, aroma, appearance, and texture, where we're constantly driving toward making the products better in each area. And nutrition would, of course, be part of that, but it's also about marketing and helping people understand the products. So if you look at the Beyond uh, Burger, for example, that has 16% daily value of sodium, not 60, but 16% which is well within reason for many, many meals that folks will consume, such as two flour tortillas or half a cup of marinara sauce, et cetera. So a lot of it is just separating the misinformation and hype from reality. This product is an extremely healthy product. It's one that I consume almost daily. It's something I feel very good about giving to my own children. And so it's really about let's educate consumers about the health of our products and about the process. We're very proud of our process. If you look at how we produce meat uh, from, from plants, instead of running a lot of plant material through animals and the antibiotics that go with or other hormones depending on the species, the veterinary drugs, etc. What we're doing is taking that protein directly from the plant, we're running it through heating, cooling, and pressure, and that resets the bonds so that they take on that fibrous texture of muscle. That's it. For me, that's a much better process and one that we can be proud of. Mm-hmm. We offer complete transparency. You'd be welcome to come to our facilities, knock on the door, and we give you a tour. People should be able to see where and how their food is made. And we believe very right. strong in that principle.
1: And so, Ethan, speaking of a different sort of process, walk us through the process of assessing these partnerships. You know, you name-checked some of the best-known when it comes to you know fast food. You've also got some partnerships in casual dining. How does that work? Because, pun intended, it feels like everybody wants a piece of this market right now.
4: Right. So you always want to align yourself with the marquee players. And that's what we've done from the beginning of the company. So when we decided to go into retail – way back in, in 2009, the first company we called was Whole Foods. And then we've been able to proliferate out through Kroger, etc. But when you then you look at our venture history, the, the first venture firm we worked with was Kleiner Perkins. And now we have a great list, including Great Point Ventures and many others. Um, but if, if you're now uh, looking at the fast food space or the quick serve restaurant space, you also want to adopt the same philosophy. Who are the marquee players and how do you become uh Of service to them. And that's what we're able to do, whether it's McDonald's, uh, whether it's Subway, uh, whether it's KFC or Dunkin'. We're constantly looking, Carl's Jr., Hardee's, etc. We're constantly looking to serve the very best partners uh, in the space so that we can grow with them.
0: What's the focus? Is it retail or food service, or will it be a 50-50 split going forward?
4: our focus is entirely on the consumer. It's our relationship with the consumer that makes the the business so special. We listen to what they say. They told us no GMOs. They told us nothing artificial. They said, keep everything natural. So that's what we do. Um, And that makes it harder, by the way. It would be much easier to genetically modify plant material to make it uh, take on the the texture and appearance and aroma of of, of animal protein, right. but we won't do that. And so we're constantly uh, focused on what the consumer wants. We'll meet the consumer where they are. So if it's if it's uh, it's quick serve restaurants, we'll be there for them. If it's retail, we'll be there for them. So, right now, it's about fifty fifty, and yeah. the market will tell us which direction. Okay,
0: go so it could change going forward, yeah.
4: right? And for sure. so,
1: Ethan, when you think about the test, let's just talk about McDonald's for a second. What have you learned so far? Because obviously, that's from a volume perspective, but also from a brand perspective, something that everyone, investors included, have been looking at very closely. What have you taken away from that test?
4: So I had the great privilege of being up in the uh, Ontario area uh, a couple weeks ago, and I drove out to uh, McDonald's there. And um, I went to three different stores and had the burger at uh, each location, and they were identical and delicious. It was a fantastic experience for me. And one that was Um, very satisfying. It's a goal I've had for a very long time to be of service to McDonald's. Um, It's going very well. I think you heard the CEO of of McDonald's Canada say that. Uh, We can't comment further than what they've said publicly, but I'm very enthusiastic about that relationship and our ability to grow the partnership.
0: Does it expand then to the United States?
4: that's up to them. Um, But what you want is a great test. And and I think we have every sign that that's the case.
1: And that is Ethan Brown, the CEO, co-founder of Beyond Meat, joining Carol and myself from Los Angeles earlier today. He was selected, and I think rightly, (laughs) to the Bloomberg 50 this year. What a year, not just for that company, but for the whole concept of plant-based meat.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I feel like it's been a game changer in terms of the conversation around food, right? We've seen it continue to evolve, but you have a company like this that comes out, they've been around, they're doing this. He's been working on it for about a decade or so, uh, but going public this year. But I do think it's pushed the conversation even further as people care more and more about what the food that they're eating. So and and
1: pushed those products into, if not Everywhere, ubiquity, like. at least uh, frequency. All right. So to set up this next story, I'm just going to read one line, a really nice piece of writing that I feel like really sets it up. It's a major milestone in the saga of an ambitious philanthropic vision to unite and protect lands for the public that was met by howls of protest from the local community. Sounds juicy. And it is. (laughs) And who's in the middle of it? the co-founder of Burt's Bees, go figure. Suzanne Woolley wrote the story, she's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. 87,000 acres of land, buying it easy, but giving it away,
5: kind of tricky. Very tricky. I don't think she really expected to be such a light rod for controversy, but she sort of quietly bought up all this land. Who's but, the she? I'm sorry, the she is Roxanne Quimby, who's the co-founder of Burt's Bees. And she had a lot of cash flow from Burt's Bees, and the land up there was cheap because the logging industry was you know, having tough times. Yeah. So she was buying you know, 200 bucks an acre. And she was like, this is literally too good of a deal not to buy. So she bought up a ton of land, and then she sort of, like in 2011, said to the community, hey, guess what? I want to I establish a national park. And they were all kind of like, huh, you do? <laughs> and um, she doesn't really like snowboarding or hunting or fishing, so she didn't want that on the land. And to a manor, that is not what they want to hear. Right. So the community, I think, was just surprised, and sort of, she just got attacked from a lot of corners. Um, I mean, it all worked out in the end, but it well, was... Well, how did she make it
0: go work out? Yeah, because like, 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 that can be a tough thing when you've got yes. kind of the locals saying, thanks, but no thanks.
5: Yeah, she felt kind of attacked, but her son, Lucas St. Clair, he grew up in Maine. He's a real outdoorsman. He fishes, he kayaks, he canoes. And he does all
0: those things. He does all those <laughs> things. He wears does. the
5: red and black checked <laughs> flannel shirt, you know, and um, she said to him, you know, can you take this over? Um, he, she admits is like much more diplomatic than she is. And he basically went on this enormous charm offensive and he just literally spent years going around and talking to people. One guy said like, I'd love to talk to you, but can we do it in like the, they were in the um, department store. Can we go in like the freezer area? Because I don't want people to see me talking to you. Oh my goodness. But, and he used to go to like the dumpster and on weekends when people come to throw out their garbage, he would talk to them, yeah. and he really just like got people to finally focus on it as a good thing for the local economy, which right. is very depressed.
1: Because he was doing a lot of retail politicking to some extent, mm-hmm. and in part because some of the opposition was coming from the former governor.
5: Yes, yes. And the governor, you know, while he was governor, was also very against it. But this is Paul
1: LePage. Ex- exactly. Yeah.
5: He was vehemently opposed to it, um, described it as a federal land grab. Um, that would you know hurt the logging industry. Um, it was a very sort of visceral attack. And um, he went to he tried to get it uh, when Obama actually gave the land the designation of a national monument, which is not quite a national park, but a national monument can be created by the president just saying like, I proclaim that this is a national monument. Yeah. and a national park is created. You have to go through Congress. And Quimby and her son knew that if it had to go through Congress under a different president, it might not happen.
0: It's pretty remarkable, right? Because you think it would be okay. Here's this land; we want to give this to you, gift it to you, and you think it would be a no-brainer, um, right? So,
5: where are they today? So, well, the signs for the um, monument finally went up. I think they're probably all up about now. But the signs have been held back in a sort of a, as part of a political tussle, because President Trump was, you know, ordered a review of some of the national monuments and whether they should be shrunk or changed or whatever. And it was on the list of those monuments. Uh. And nothing happened to it. It wasn't diminished or anything. But, um, you know, the governor put it on hold, said, like, well, we, we don't want to put the signs up because we don't know what's going to happen. So, And then there were lots of twists and turns, and they sat in storage for a year, but now they're going up. And so, you know, Suzanne, you
1: cover the wealthy, <laughs> as it were, uh, writ large, very large, people live in large. And I do wonder, you know, this feels very of the moment that this is the type of philanthropy that, that people are doing. And it does also feel like a lesson that it's not as easy as it looks all the time, because I'm sure – Roxanne Quimby thought, slam dunk, this is easy.
5: I'm buying it for cheap. I'm doing something good for the world and probably didn't anticipate this happening. No, she said she really had the battle scars to show for it. Um, I mean, doing what she did is unusual and that she spent years like buying up, like paying like $25,000 per deal. She was like a real estate wheeler and dealer up there for a while. Um, And... You know, she she says, you know, it's a really wonderful thing if you're able to do something like this to protect land right. for the long term. It's a great thing to do. But it certainly is not as easy as writing a check. Right. <laughs> but it's not of yeah. the times that, I mean, people are pushing back or saying, well, here's, you know,
0: great, but wait, here's what I want. Right. Yes. Well, and, and so- also,
1: it's sort of the the complications that come from the economics of industries that are – going through certainly mm-hmm. right. uh, a certain amount of trauma yeah. Yeah. dislocation is a really good way to put to it yeah, yeah absolutely alright because there's a whole other issue we didn't get to talk about which has to do with indigenous peoples and oh, the monument yeah. and all of those things so check out this story it's really terrific Suzanne Woolley wrote it buying 87,000 acres of land was easy giving away was harder be better
0: be better that's B-E-E. What it's about.
1: B-E-E. B-E-E. better. we we're this. talking yeah. about bird space I'm driving in my car.
3: This is The Drive to the Close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
0: It is time for The Drive to the Close with us Don Townswick. He's Director of Equity Strategies at Cunning, based in Hartford, Connecticut in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio right here in New York City. Nice to see you.
6: Just going to be here.
0: So we were talking before we got going um, about some of the expectations we're hearing about 2020 uh, and the potential for the bull run to continue in the equity market. You are like, yeah, that's kind of how we see it. <laughs>
6: that is exactly. We don't really see anything in the way now. And everything we look at indicates that, you know, earnings are going to grow up by 7-8%. And that's usually more than enough to actually support a, a, an average market return. And a lot of the uncertainty surrounding a trade deal has been somewhat removed by this phase one deal. And it's hard to say, looking historically, what trade wars really do. But we think that anything that starts to resolve that will be positive for the market. So you've got a little bit of wind at your back from some resolution of trade conflict. And you've got a good-looking earnings year ahead. So we think that we could continue this run. All right.
1: So as much as I complained at the top of the show that we talk about trade every day, I'm going to talk more about trade. But I have to ask you, as you look back at 2019, certainly trade will be one of the dominant stories, as you've alluded to. And I do wonder, at the various points along the year, did you think this is going to be great for equities? This is going to be terrible for equities. This is going to be good for the world, bad
6: for the world. Like, take us through the sort of journey, as it were. Well, the market hates uncertainty. Yeah. I think that's the worst part. And I think that as this negotiation process, such as it was, drew on and on and on, because frankly, we were of the opinion that this would have been resolved by now. But as these negotiations dragged on and on, there were many points during the, the course of the year that we thought this would be the point that broke the camel's back, if you will, in terms of, of equity returns. Um, clearly the pullbacks that we saw when there were frustrations in the trade negotiations were supportive of that view and then it looked like the pent-up upward pressure on the market that would that would just pop when there was positive news uh to us meant that that not only were we looking for good news in in terms of that trade but the entire market was really looking for that good news. And so it's been very leveraged on that news cycle.
0: So how have you leveraged the news cycle to maybe put new money to work?
6: Well, I mean, I think we find that it's very difficult to forecast whether the market's gonna go up or down. We manage money for the most conservative investors that you could possibly imagine, and that's insurance companies and, and some pension funds. So we can't afford to be out of the market when it goes to if it were to turn around and go up the
0: equity markets
6: correct the equity markets. sorry that's right we can't afford to be out of the markets we can't afford to miss that but what we do find is that when we come out and we have a market forecast for our clients uh, they'll take a look at that and sometimes they will give us more money to invest based upon our expectations um,
0: And how, how, so that's what I'm curious about. Maybe in some of the pullbacks, I'm assuming that you would put more money to work. Where would you put it to work?
6: Well, in our case, we tend to be big believers in dividend paying equities. Yeah, These companies tend to pay dividends based upon growing their free cash flow. And if you could grow that free cash flow, even when growth is weak, when growth is stronger, that free cash flow growth can go through the roof. Those companies have managed to, pay their dividends and grow their dividends over time, that's where we really have found the value in the market. And it's driven very good equity returns now for coming up on nine years. It's
0: so funny, Don, because I feel like Jason and I have had a fair amount of guests who have talked about, you know, the dividend play. And I go back to kind of the beginning of my career, and we used to talk about DRIPS, dividend reinvestment plans. Like, Mm -hmm. that was you know a very serious and um you know strategy that a lot of folks followed but i feel like it's kind of come back in fashion to some extent
6: absolutely absolutely especially when yields dropped to to nominal levels right, of zero yields- in the financial crisis if
0: you've got a two three four percent dividend
6: yeah we found companies that were whose whose corporate bonds had a lower yield than their equities at that point it's one of the things that drove conning to start a high dividend equity strategy. Historically, people have loved dividends, but it became even that much more important if you needed income to yeah. go to that use that dividend play starting 10 years ago or so. All right.
1: So what's your biggest worry going into 2020? It looks like, knock on for Micah here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers uh-huh. studio, that we will miss out happily on the volatility that we saw this time last year. Uh, that was a little bit turbulent, to say the least. But what do you worry about as the calendar actually does turn and we get into 2020?
6: Well, the biggest concern I think that that we see in the short run, and it's really, a, it's really we're not sure what's going to happen. But we did see retail sales weaken a little bit relative to expectations. Mm-hmm. And the consumer has really been carrying this market on their shoulders as we've seen some. Uh, shrinkage, some, some reduction in, in, in the industrial sector of the economy. We hope that, that will continue to turn around. We, we do see income growth continuing to be strong, which should support the retail sales area. But consumer weakness is always a danger zone for the market. So if we saw that, that would be a concern. There's also the question of, of the geopolitical macro questions that we see out there.
0: Which geopolitical issue worries you the most? If you had to pick one, what would it be? I
6: just, I think that um, Brexit always has that opportunity. The last time I was here was the day Brexit passed. Uh, And here we are three and a half years later, and there's still uncertainty associated with it. So it's just, that's a big question. But um, I guess I personally just keep coming back to North Korea uh, and how that uncertainty continues. So um, South Korea is a very important ally and trading partner. Who knows what could happen there, but um, by and large, it looks like ideally we'll see some sort of action taken in, for example, the Eurozone to try to boost growth there. But if that doesn't continue, that's also problematic because we can't have the Eurozone continuing to be a slow growth economy while we continue strong.
0: Which we actually had some data points out, I think, um, overnight that showed, I think, some weakness in Germany and and maybe some concerns about really uh, the European economy once again. So, yeah, that continues. Euro Euro economy ends 2019 still struggling as momentum stalls, one of the stories on the Bloomberg.
1: All right. Don Townswick is Director of Equity Strategies at Conning based up in Hartford, Connecticut, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio today. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on itunes soundcloud or bloomberg.com you can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m eastern
4: only on bloomberg radio